How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> nice. You, you held that a little bit longer than usual. Well, we're back to Zoom again. Back to Zoom, doing a little Zoom zooming. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. In the studio sometimes, not in the studio. It's a whole new world. Um, please introduce our guest for tonight. All right. She is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and at Massachusetts General Hospital and serves as the MGH Psychiatry Associate Chief of Quality and Safety, Director of the Pediatric Bipolar Disorder Clinical and Research Program, and Director of the Child and Adolescent Outpatient Service. Her research has been supported by the Stanley Research Foundation, NARSAD, and public service grants from the National Institutes of Mental Health. She is widely regarded as an expert in pediatric bipolar disorder. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Dr. Janet Wozniak. Yeah, welcome, Dr. Wozniak. It's so Thank nice you. to see you. Full disclosure, Dr. Wozniak and I go way back. I met her when I was starting my child psychiatry fellowship in 1993. And mm -hmm. you were already there at MGH? Brand new, brand new faculty. I had just yeah. completed my training a year prior. So I was yeah. uh, that, that gave me authority to teach you. <laughs> it did. It did. One year ahead of you. <laughs> and an excellent teacher told me a lot. And so well, let's start there. So how, how did you wind up getting involved in this quite controversial diagnosis? It's um, it, well. It's interesting. It started out as really my first research project. I, I wasn't even sure I was going to be a child psychiatry researcher, but I started working uh, with one of your recent guests, Dr. Joe Biederman, uh, who is an extremely inspiring teacher, and um, he had a project, like a dilemma or a problem, and he asked if I would participate in a research project to help figure it out and solve it. And the problem was. Um, that uh, structured interviews that we had been doing, he had been doing in our clinic and in research populations for the previous, I don't know, five to 10 years, um, were showing a kind of significant minority of children who in, whose parents endorsed the symptoms for bipolar disorder or, mm. or mania. And these were children, young ones under the age of 12. And he said to me, either our interviews are making a mistake and signaling mania when these children don't have mania at all, or we have an opportunity to describe a hitherto thought to be very rare disorder that we're seeing in a significant minority of the children in the clinic. So um, my job was to look very carefully at all the symptoms that these children had and their co-occurring problems and correlates and to um, help come to a conclusion as to whether this really was pediatric onset bipolar disorder. So, so let me understand this. So so these kids were getting some paper pencil tests. There was something like that. And that was showing these mm -hmm. sort of well, mm -hmm. pattern what of it actually was, 
That's right, pattern of symptoms. It was a structured clinical interview. So in children, we use a structured clinical interview called the KSADS, like the Kitty Schedule for Affective Disorders and Schizophrenia. And it is basically a structured series of questions that goes through all of the different parts of our diagnostic manual um, as a way of making uh, research and clinical diagnoses. And we had trained raters who were going through these series of questions with parents about their children and with the older children about themselves. And we found that about 16% of the group that we had been um, interviewing endorsed uh, the, the symptoms of um, bipolar disorder, um, which means that they had a, the diagnosis of mania. Um, and um, the um, symptoms involve two parts. The first part is a mood disorder part. And the second are the kind of uh, core, what we call like the criterion B or the extra additional symptoms. And the mood disorder involves um, states of extreme euphoria, kind of giddy, goofy, silly, hyper high um, moods that, um, that we sometimes talk about in kids, um, or states of extreme rage and irritability. Those are the two main mood um, features of mania. Um, and then the additional symptoms, distractibility, increased activity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, reckless activities, decreased need for sleep, talkativeness. Some of these symptoms overlap directly with a disorder we make commonly in childhood, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Mm -hmm. So distractibility, increased energy or activity, um, talkativeness, those are all literally symptoms that are on the um, ADHD list of symptoms as well. And ADHD is a really bread and butter diagnosis for us in child psychiatry. You know, if a child comes into our clinic, I haven't even met them yet, I could say, hmm, I bet they might have ADHD because about 80% of our referrals are children who have uh, ADHD because it starts early in life, it's very disruptive and difficult, and there's treatments for it. Um, but this other question of whether they could have mania, well, that was, that was rather unusual. At that point in the early 1990s, um, there were some case reports of children who had mania. They would invariably start with a, a paragraph that said something to the effect of, this is an extraordinarily rare condition, but I'd like to describe a handful of children in my clinic who appear to have a very early onset of bipolar disorder. Well, this wasn't just a handful in our clinic. This was 16% of our um, underage 12 referrals. And um, it was 16% of the referrals, but it was about 90% of our headaches because these were children who actually had a tremendous amount of difficulties emotionally, socially, academically, interpersonally. Um, they really um, had used a lot of resources. By the time they came to us at the average age of eight, about 20% of them had already been psychiatrically hospitalized. So we knew that whatever we were identifying was something that was really significantly impairing. Um, to these kids and their families' lives. Um, and uh, the first question that we had, being child psychiatrists, was could this actually just be a form of ADHD? Since they, in addition to meeting the criteria for mania, I am all but one of them, I don't know, 98% of the children who we were um, studying had a rip-roaring case of ADHD. Not just a few symptoms, but parents endorsed really kind of just about all of the hyperactive and inattentive and impulsive symptoms of ADHD. Um, the thing is, you know, 80% of the kids in our clinic have ADHD, 
This was a 16% subset of the ADHD population. And at the time, I'd say most child psychiatrists, and maybe even now, think of these kids as, um, these youngsters as um, individuals, children who have ADHD, like a subset of the whole ADHD population that's very emotionally dysregulated. Because ADHD is not a mood disorder diagnosis. You might say that kids who have ADHD are easily, and adults too, by the way, are easily frustrated. They might become short-tempered or irritable when you press them to do things that are difficult, like you know work that requires mental effort or sustained concentration. But none of the symptoms of ADHD are mood symptoms. And bipolar disorder is a mood diagnosis. So these were children whose parents invariably would say, my child is very moody. There is uh, uh, dramatic mood shifts that are occurring. And the most impairing of these moods that the parents were usually coming to help for were the rages, the um, outbursts. You know, in, in children, we sometimes we talk about tantrums. Tantrums are a normal developmental phase that children go through, especially preschoolers. Um, these were above and beyond qualitatively and quantitatively different than a tantrum. They would go on sometimes for 30, 60 minutes, hours. They would involve hitting, kicking, biting, spitting, screaming, yelling, breaking, throwing, destroying things. Um, so uh, one of the things that I learned early on was how poor we were in psychiatry, really through the whole life cycle, at talking about anger and irritability and rage. What diagnosis is that? Some clinicians would say it crosses all diagnostic boundaries, so we can't really use it as a symptom. But yet, it didn't. It didn't uh, make sense because the the type of irritability and rage these parents were describing again and again and again had the very similar, highly impairing quality and quantity um, type characteristics. So much so that I could start to describe it before they even did, and they'd say, "Yes, yes, yes, that's what we're experiencing." Yeah. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's wonderful that you are here to talk about this because we have a lot of people in the audience, I'm sure, who are interested in how do you distinguish between that sort of rage and the rage of other kids. And and there's so much of this is part of normal childhood in some ways, right? The euphoria, the giddiness. So how how do we distinguish what's what's part of normal childhood and what could be a precursor to bipolar. Yeah, well, I, first you can get a degree in child psychiatry and devote your time <laughs> to understanding what uh, development brings and, and what's typical and what's less typical. And, and that's kind of, that's, yeah. I'd like to encourage people to do that, please, because <laughs> yeah. we could use you. There is a oh true God. shortage of child psychiatrists, so come on over. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off. It's so true. Demand really exceeds supply for uh, any expert clinicians. Um, but um, but you're right. You know, children are moody. Um, sometimes I'll, when I'm lecturing, I'll look at the room and I'll say, if you were a group of five or six-year-olds, this room would look very differently. Some of you would be screaming or singing or standing on your chair or pushing the person next to you. And we think that that was all just cute and nice and a bunch of kids. But if all of a sudden the group of 30 or 40 or 50 year olds started doing that, it, we'd call the police. It would be quite alarming, right? So we know that with development, we develop emotional regulation, the ability to contain our emotions um, and to express them in socially appropriate ways. Um, in children, that's a, an emerging capacity and we expect different levels of it at different ages. 
Um, even from kindergarten to first grade, we can see a big difference in kids, right? Kindergartners are sort of a stream of consciousness, cute group of kids. First graders start to line up and sit in chairs and sit for longer periods of time. And by the time they're in fourth and fifth and sixth grade, we expect them to be containing their impulses and emotions for much longer periods of time. So what we're often doing, usually, this is what we do in child psychiatry, is when we meet a child who's having difficulties, we try to tease out what do you expect for a child that age? What, what me, how, how are they different from their aged matched peers? And um, a, one parent gave me this great image of uh, like a five-pointed star to describe the different mood states of his bipolar child. And so I often use this image in my own mind and talking to parents. And I ask about all of these different facets of expression of moods in children. And the first is just what you might expect of a typical, let's say, eight-year-old. Because it turns out age eight is a common age of presentation to our clinic for the under age 12 group. The pre-pubertal group, we often get to see them by the time they're age eight. Um, then there's these other moods of mania. One of them is euphoria. Mania, people think of mania, if you watch kind of TV or celebrity type of bipolar disorder, you hear about these euphoric states, feeling on top of the world, um, feeling uh, a high sense of self-confidence, lots of energy, being very productive. Um, and in kids, we sometimes ask about giddy, goofy, silly, um, laughing fits, um, you know, uh, braggy, bossy, show-offy kind of states. Now, you might say, all kids do that right, to some degree, some more than others. But even among five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, some kids stand out among their peers as having a much greater quality and quantity of that in a way that's disruptive and impairing. Um, but separate from the euphoria, that's not usually why parents are coming into a child, my child's, our child's psychiatry office suite. It's not because their child's too silly and cute. It's because their child, it's usually the anger, the irritability, and the rage. And we think of the anger and irritability and rage and kind of as two flavors. There's these um, outbursts that are extreme. And this is often oh, what is uh, most impairing for the children and for their families. Um, it's above and beyond what you would call, think of as a tantrum. And it involves these hitting, kicking, biting, spitting, breaking, throwing, destructive behaviors. Um, they can go on for... 20, 30, 60 minutes or longer, once or twice, three times, four times a day, even if they happen once or twice a week. It's a terrible, terrible problem. And then there's another type of irritability, this grouchy, cranky, whiny, complainy. It's often how we think of childhood depression. Um, depression can also be melancholy and sad. So what have I given you? I've got your, your regular eight-year-old. You've got the euphoric, goofy-giddy, silly states. You've got the rageful, out-of-control, aggressive states. You've got the grouchy, cranky, whiny, complainy. And then there's just sad and blue and melancholy. So childhood depression, adult depression too, can be melancholy, cheerful, sad, hopeless. But more often than not in childhood, it's a lot of times in adulthood too, we see depression as appearing as a grouchy, cranky, uh, joyless, difficult-to-please, joyless moods, kind of short-tempered, um, unhappy in a in a grouchy way, I guess is how I'd put it. So that's a different flavor of irritability, right? And uh, one of the things that we learned when we started to um, uh, study these children is that we hadn't done a good job in psychiatry of really delineating, parsing out all these different types of irritability. 
I used to say that, you know, the Inuits had like a thousand words for snow or, you know, maybe in, uh, in Ireland, there's a million ways to talk about green. And we just would talk about irritability. My child's irritable. My child gets mad. And if when I hear that from a resident or from somebody else, I always say, you have to ask a lot more questions. What does that mean? Is it, you know, is it, is it rage? Is it grouchy? Is it all the time? Is it part of the time? And the other feature of these children is this sort of dramatic shift that they can occur. With the kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde quality, some parents will tell me, where they're like a roller coaster of changes. Starting the day in one way, getting onto the school bus in one way, coming home another way, switching into the evening. It leaves the parents' and families' heads spinning as the child kind of goes through all of these different mood facets. Um, grouchy, cranky, complaining, I don't like it, I don't want to go to school, don't make me. Coming home in a state of excitement because they got invited to some party and they want to go out and buy a new cell phone because they need that for the party. And then flying into a rage when their parents say, no, we can't buy your new cell phone, you're only 10 years old. Um, and then dissolving in tears, hopeless and sad. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I screamed at you. I don't, I'm a terrible person. I should never be alive. Um, and then kind of coming out of it to sometimes be a regular eight-year-old who does their homework and goes to bed and, and wake up for the next day. So um, the dramatic shifts in mood is also something that we see. And, and you can see that there's these different mood states. Two of them are like depressed grouchy, mm -hmm. cranky, and melancholy and sad. And two of them are manic, giddy, goofy, hyper, and rageful. Um, and in a day, if you have all of those, we call that a mixed state. You've got mm -hmm. mania, you've got depression, you're, they're overlapping in time, they're flipping back and forth from one to the other. Uh, children are depressed and giddy at the same time. It's a very kind of complicated mix of moods um, that um, the children are experiencing and parents are witnessing. And they're cycling back and forth, back and forth like that. Not the same sort of cycling that Mark's going to be doing over the weekend. Um, right. Right. But, but no, but equally exhausting. But equally yeah. exhausting. I think it's equally like exhausting. So, exactly. So I'm, I'm interested at, at, at the age of onset around eight, or at least is that, is well, that that's the, age the onset or is that when we start seeing it because yeah, we now yeah, have yeah. something to compare to? Yeah, I think it's a couple of reasons. One, I mean, I, mean, I used to say uh, it's, that's how long it takes to get an appointment with a child psychiatrist. You start when you're three or four and it takes you four years. But, uh, but a lot of, uh, but I think more often than not, parents keep thinking, my child's so little, this, this, they'll grow out of it. And, and, you know, grandma's wisdom is kids will grow out of it, hang in there. And toddlers are difficult, you know, preschoolers, it's hard to raise a, a, a child mm -hmm. in general, and raising preschoolers is really a hard time because those kids are emotionally dysregulated and needy mm -hmm. and demanding, and you know, there's so many things they're going through. So, because of that, I think you know, these parents will, you know, sometimes normalize it. They'll hear stories that, oh, terrible twos, so they'll just assume that this is what it is, not realizing that their two year old is, you know, a few standard deviations more terrible than the average. A lot of times these are kids, I'll get the story, that they got kicked out of preschools and day schools, uh, preschools and, um, and daycares, because the, um, they couldn't be handled. I mean, preschools and daycares, they're ready for preschoolers. They have a lot of staff. But these children, they're so demanding and so moody and so unpredictable and sometimes aggressive and dangerous 
that they couldn't be handled in these typical settings, you know, even yeah. among their age-matched peers who are all emotionally dysregulated. So I think the families are waiting for them to grow out of it. And then they get to be six, seven, and eight, and they realize they have to do something. And parents are afraid of going to, you know, everyone's afraid to see a psychiatrist. I mean, it, it's terrible, you know, I'm obviously, I, this, this is what I live my day in life. Day, day and night is, you know, all about psychiatric illness and identifying it and treating it and talking about it. But I, you know, most people, most people, it, if they're aware of it, they feel ashamed of it. It's like a family I, secret. It's a personal secret. There's yeah. just still so much stigma associated yeah. with psychiatric illness. And, and that is absolutely what we are trying to address with the whole I am approach. And we're yeah. all doing the best we can and you know, let's move away Absolutely. from this idea that somehow you're broken. No one's broken. We're responding, mm -hmm. responding the best we can. If we don't like it, we can change it. You know, you know if somebody part. it's true. And you know, if somebody were kind of, you know, falling over with chest pain and turning blue, you wouldn't consider it a character disorder or or, exactly. or, or a short falling, or you wouldn't say to them, you should just behave better and and, and stop doing that. Um, terrible thing but we see these symptoms thinking feeling behavior symptoms as somehow being something that people should be expected to control or yeah. that if you have them there's something um something um so wrong with you that it that it, you you it can't be talked about um so it's, the shame and the guilt of it and 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 then the parents saying there must be something wrong with me i must be a bad parent that my kid is doing this and oh, so even God. more to then to then say i'm not i'm not exposing that to anyone i'm not i'm not poor parents that. right poor parents because we're always screwing up aren't we isn't it the hardest job you've ever had to be a absolutely parent? Yeah. you know medical school and all that but, it's a breeze compared to parenting right. but and, it's also the most wonderful what you know what i say <laughs> to parents is is first never let anybody tell you that you are not the expert in your kid you're the expert Yep. People yep. like me, which is the professionals, the most important person is the kid, but you're the expert. And I also say it is much more rewarding to be amazed at who your child is than disappointed in who they are not. Mm -hmm. Just be amazed at who they are. They're mm -hmm. so cool. So so yeah, here we are, eight, eight years old. Are we now yes. looking? Go on. Where, well, where, where I was going to tell you about these eight-year-olds. So yeah. We, they, they, so we, we parsed out in our clinic the, all the kids who had come, you know, under age 12 who had come to us in those pre-pubertal years um, as a kind of separate group from the uh, teenagers. And 75% um, of the parents bringing in those youngsters described problems that started in the preschool years. Huh. These were children who were just kicked out of daycare, couldn't go to preschool, um, uh, couldn't have regular play dates because they were just so emotionally dysregulated on a regular basis. Families held hostage by it. They can't go and do regular family things because of these symptoms. So uh, so it's, so it's everybody's really shell-shocked. Um, by the time I see them at age 8, 9, or 10, it's already been going on a really long time. But you know what's the terrible thing? Is we have so little research on preschoolers like distinguishing typical preschool development from something that might be going awry. And, you know, in medicine, you want to identify things at the earliest possible time. Cancer, right. you don't want to wait till cancer is a big tumor. You want to find the tiniest, earliest stages, right? Um, and yet, with these psychiatric things, we kind of just let things go on and let things go on and let things go on. 
almost as if we're kind of um, unwilling to unwilling to believe that something could go wrong at such an early age. And yet we have plenty of evidence that it does. And why not? The brain is so complex. Why, why is it that thinking, feeling, and behavior couldn't already be going on the wrong developmental trajectory from the time children are born? I had one parent who said to me, not only did I have a preschooler with bipolar disorder, I had a newborn with bipolar disorder. And then mothers would say, I'm sure it started in utero. Because they would talk just about a kind of a physical agitation that they experienced. And these poor, and then these newborns who are difficult to soothe and constantly moody and um, seem to be uncomfortable and unhappy. And then they grow up, you know, start to use their hands and legs. And what do they do? They break and throw things and attack and scream and yell and fall to the floor and sometimes bang and hurt themselves. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's just mayhem. It's just mayhem. And yet, because we know that preschoolers are already have some of these elements of dysregulation, babies cry, you need to hold them. Toddlers have tantrums. Um, they can be very moody and unpredictable. But th that shouldn't let us off the hook. There has to be ways to identify these problems at the time that they're happening. And yet we don't really study preschoolers. It's, it's, not, it's, it's very little researched in that field. I think part of it is I think part of it is people are afraid because the treatments that we use for bipolar disorder are medications that can have a lot of unpleasant side effects associated with them. Yeah. I, I, we're actually we're actually less less reluctant to diagnose autism early in life. We huh. actually do do that more often for very little kids and we start them with different types of ABA therapies and social skills therapies. Um, I think that part of the concern about making a mood disorder diagnosis is that the treatments we have are these pharmacologic ones are ones that people are afraid of. Yeah. But that, but that shouldn't stop you from making the diagnosis. Treatment now, is separate. Right. And, and that, that does lead into, you know, how do we treat this? Um, but before we get there, is, is there family history very often, bipolar? Yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. In fact, one of my first studies, so one of the, so when we started to ask this question, could this be bipolar? We started to kind of figure out how might we study that to, 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 to feel comfortable that, that it is or it isn't. And so one of the things, one of the studies we started in was a family study. They call it a family genetic study, but it's all about family history. So we took a bunch of kids, the group of kids who we diagnosed with mania, and we interviewed all their first-degree relatives or parents about the other children. We had extensive characterization of their relatives. And then we took a group of children who didn't have bipolar disorder, who had ADHD, no mood disorder, just ADHD, and also did a same type of uh, family history, not just asking who has what disorder, but doing these direct, structured, lengthy interviews. It's really kind of a very laborious, long process. And at Mass General, one of my uh, early grants was to start doing these family studies. And we've actually amassed the largest family study of pediatric bipolar disorder with about 200, nearly 240 um, pediatric bipolar subjects. And we hypothesized this. If this is a form of bipolar disorder, we're going to find more, bi we're going to find bipolar disorder and depression in the relatives of those kids more than we would in the ADHD group. If it's just a form of ADHD, we would find family histories very similar to those kids who we said were plain ADHD. 
And what we found was high rates of bipolar disorder and depression in the family members of the children who we had diagnosed with bipolar disorder. A piece of evidence that we were barking up the right tree in calling these kids bipolar. And, and there was pushback, wasn't there, from, from one community after the other? We, we, we don't think this yeah. is real? You know, you know who the biggest pushback was from? Not so much parents and not even clinicians who were doing the hard work of seeing these families and kids in their offices. It was the, my fellow researchers. Huh. Fellow researchers would make big deal out of, I've been doing this research all these years and I've never seen a kid... Uh, well, this is the story. Um, I have a <laughs> depression. I have a depression clinic. I have an ADHD clinic for kids. I've never seen a bipolar kid. Well, that researcher ended up having more grants for bipolar disorder than any other researcher um, in in the world, I think. And when I meet him, I always say, "Isn't it lucky those bipolar kids all moved to Pittsburgh so you could study them? Because <laughs> they obviously weren't there before." <laughs> That's great. But the body right. just goes to show you, unless you're asking for the problem, right. you're not going to see it. You see the other right. parts. Right. Mark or Tom, any, any thoughts about this? Mark, we'll start with you. What do you think? That's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And I could see how that the researchers would not want to diagnose this. It seems more of a... My understanding is bipolar would typically present at 18 to 21 years old. Is that accurate? That was the common wisdom. But it just goes to show how common wisdom can close your mind off to things. Mm -hmm. That was wisdom, common, common knowledge, common wisdom, but it wasn't based in any evidence base. So in fact, my fellow researchers who hadn't seen a case, they didn't even use the mania module in their question. They wouldn't even ask about it. And if they heard the symptoms, they, they attributed them elsewhere. Oh, rage. Well, bipolar kids, um, ADHD kids can have tantrums, you know, or they wouldn't even, you know, wouldn't even distinguish the rage from a tantrum, for example because they didn't have it as part of their rubric that it might be possible. Um, so it was really living through a true paradigm shift, which um, was remarkable for me as kind of my first and my, my earliest, um, you know, scientific endeavor. It was a really a true paradigm shift. It must, it's, it's like it must have been when somebody said, the earth is round, and everyone said, don't be ridiculous, the earth is flat. And that's kind of what we experienced for a long time. We kept saying, but here's the evidence. Here's, it looks like bipolar because of this. And we think it's bipolar because of this. It wasn't just one thing. It was the family study. It was the treatment study. It was the longitudinal studies, all of these things. And now there's even genetic evidence and some brain and imaging evidence as well. All of it kind of pieces in the larger puzzle. No one, no one finding that determined this was, a, was the case but many different pieces. And yet people would look at it and say, I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced. Because they got so stuck in this one idea that children can't have bipolar. Yeah. Why would that even be? I mean, we know that children can get depressed. At that point, all of those colleagues would say, of course children can have childhood depression. Well, what? Why couldn't they also have mania then? Why is it that bipolar disorder is some special thing that would never occur in such a small brain? It didn't. It didn't make any sense. It was. It was a rigidity that happens when people get stuck in an idea, and then you. And even with all, you know, the Earth is round, but it took a long time for people to accept it. Right. So. Uh, that's fascinating, and you would think that simply interviewing those that are presenting, quote unquote, at eighteen to twenty-one years old, if you interviewed them and took a history, 
you'd realize that this was presenting a lot sooner, right? Well, that's a very good point. That we started, we did the bottom up, the youngsters growing up. My colleagues in adult psychiatry started doing some top down studies. And they did this remarkable thing that had never really been done before, is they took all the adults in their bipolar clinic and they said, when did your symptoms actually start? Because the start of the disorder was often linked to the first hospitalization right. or the most dramatic episode or even the first treatment. But yet when you ask them, it turns out that about two thirds of the adults in our adult clinic described an onset in childhood or adolescence. One third in adulthood. So it, so when people say to me, are these kids the same people we treat in adult clinics? I say, well, some of them are because the people in the adult clinics are a heterogeneous group um, as far as age of onset goes. And age of onset may be a key piece of what makes bipolar disorder heterogeneous in general and may lead to different types of treatment outcomes and predictions, of course. Mark, you know, your... Your theme for Sal's Law, better to be proactive than reactive, I think that applies directly mm -hmm. to yeah. Dr. Wozniak's uh, research and what we can do. So how yep. can we be proactive in this? And once we found a child who looks like they have bipolar, what do we do? Right. Well, first, first, I think, is being open to considering the diagnosis. And I think people do become frightened of this diagnosis because mood stabilizing medications, and there's a series of them, they all are fraught with serious and annoying side effects. And they feel scary, feel scary to give your child a medication for their thinking and their feeling and their behavior. Um, and and it is scary because we, we don't know what's gone right in the brain when everything seems to go right in life. And we don't know really what's gone wrong when people have problems with their mood or their thinking or their feelings or their behavior. So we have these medicines and we know from studies that they bring people out of their bad symptoms, but I can't tell you exactly what they've done in the brain. And so that's very scary for all of us, those of us who prescribe and, and for parents who are choosing um, to have their children treated with medications. But what we're always doing is a risk benefit ratio. What's the risk of not treating? Sometimes you know, parents will say, I would feel horrible if I gave my child a terrible side effect with this medicine, you know, as would I as a prescriber, I'd feel terrible. But what I say to parents is, but how will you feel by leaving these symptoms gone on unabated? Um, not only are they scary and frightening and dangerous, but the impact on a child's sense of self and self-esteem, even if the symptoms evaporate in a few years, living through that part of life sticks with an individual for a long time and can have a negative impact on their sense of self. So we balance out, what if you don't treat? There's the short run problem of the symptoms. And I've kind of described some of the horrific depression and rage and anger and emotionality that these kids have. But we also know that bipolar disorder has a couple of huge, terrible, bad, longer term outcomes. Suicide attempts, completed suicide, high rates of that with bipolar disorder, substance abuse and addiction, very high rates of that with bipolar disorder and even more so with very young onset bipolar disorder. And, and honestly, criminal arrest and incarceration. I can't tell you how many of these children will do these kind of outrageous things in public, not because they're bad people, but because when you're manic, you are not thinking straight and you might lie or steal or vandalize or fight. And where do you end up? You end up getting arrested. 
So I'm often trying to divert these children from the criminal justice system into the mental health system. So we're trying to prevent some terrible bad outcomes. We're trying to help people um, rid themselves of serious and impairing symptoms in the short run. And um, luckily, we do have FDA-approved medications that can um, help with that. Because those medicines are so frightening, I've actually been doing a series of studies on what we call natural, complementary and alternative treatments. Omega-3 fatty acids people have heard about. There's other ones, N-acetylcysteine, like a protein derivative, inositol, a natural sugar. All of these can have psychoactive effects. And so I'm doing these studies because I want parents to be able to have some options. You know, if they don't want to choose the prescription medication, they could try natural treatments so that they're not afraid of making the diagnosis to begin with because all treatment has to start with the diagnosis. You have to start with that first. Um, there's also non-medication interventions. There's different types of parent guidance, collaborative problem solving. It's a much better way to parent a child who has these explosive behaviors. Um, it's a kind of very contrary to grandma's old wisdom of be firm, say no, don't back down, be the authoritarian parent. These children don't do so well with these authoritarian type parents. They really need to, they need you to be less rigid than they are. They need more flexibility. Collaborative problem solving is a type of parenting that works really well with these children. Um, and then there's this type of behavioral therapy that's called dialectical behavioral therapy, fancy name, DBT, all about helping people with emotional regulation problems. And it works very well in adults and young adults. And we have researchers who are bringing it down to even for children to access. So we do have more than just these mood stabilizing FDA approved medication treatments. And so I would encourage parents to not be afraid of the diagnosis because you're afraid of the treatment. Mm -hmm. And yet the treatment can be so effective in, in helping these kids. I, I, I remember when, when I worked with a kid with ADD and parents didn't want to bring on medicine and he went on some medicine. He was like nine, 10 years old, came in the next time. I said, how are you doing? He said, I've had some of the best days ever. The IM has, has two basic truths, right? Because four domains interconnect, your home domain, the social domain, the biological domain, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. And we've been talking about that. We've been talking about stuff that happens at home, at school, the way this kid sees themselves, the way the parents see themselves, and of course the biological domain. Because the domains interconnect, small changes can have big effects. So Dr. Wozniak, what small change can you recommend to our listeners if they may be concerned that they have a kid with bipolar? Well, I think step one is ask the question, could it be bipolar? Don't be afraid of the question. Uh, you know, our, the stigma in our society and difficulty in accessing psychiatric care makes it hard to even think of that or ask the question, no matter what age you are, as it turns out. I have plenty of adults who say, I'll talk about being depressed, I'll talk about my anxiety, but I don't want to tell people I have bipolar disorder. Part of the reason has to do with the kind of bad way in which uh, journalists and the press sometimes dis depict individuals with bipolar disorder as being I don't know, violent, aggressive, criminals. Um, it's as if it gets associated with something quite frightening. Um, when, in, when in fact, the vast majority of people who have bipolar disorder are sometimes super productive, uh, successful people, you know, uh, celebrities even have written about their bipolar disorder. Famous people have had bipolar disorder, have contributed amazing things to our society. 
Um, it can bring with it a kind of an energy and creativity that's really unique. And yet, I think people are afraid of it, afraid of the word and afraid of the diagnosis. And so they don't even consider it to begin with. That's yeah. true for the clinicians too. Clinicians can't be, shouldn't be blind to it. Researchers can't be blind to it. You have to keep an open mind. You used to, uh, some people say seeing is believing, but you'd have to believe a little before you see it. Because like my colleague who never saw a case of it, well, that's because he hadn't considered it might exist. Yeah, it's true. You have to, you have to believe a little bit before you can see it. And the, the other truth of the I am is because everybody's interested in what you think or feel about them and you're part of someone's home and social domain and you know you have an effect on their biological domain because it feels different if you're treated with respect or disrespect. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Janet Wozniak, MGH, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, I, I really hope that uh, my legacy includes um, diminishing the stigma, secrecy, silence surrounding these illnesses. Um, I went into psychiatry largely because I grew up with a mother who was very ill. From the time I was very small, she had a psychotic illness. And the illness was terrible, but it was probably worse having all of the secrecy surrounding it, feeling unable to talk about it as a child to anybody else. Having my mother feel ashamed, so ashamed that when I became a psychiatrist, she thought it was like to, to cast some light on her disability. So if I can do anything to help people feel like these are illnesses like any other illness, and we need to talk openly about them so that people feel comfortable getting treatment, then that's, that would be the influence I would like to have. That's fantastic. And that's what the IM is also all about. It's what it's about. No one's broken, folks. Come out, get some help. Remember, you're always valuable. Dr. Wozniak, thanks so much for being on the Dr. Joe Show tonight. Yes, thank much you. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me.